Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Well, we've done it, everybody. Um, All of you out there are listening, our panelists today. We've made it through another intense week of politics in Georgia and across the country. And we're going to talk about the developments that have been taking place this week with a great panel today, starting with my uh, good friend, Jim Galloway, the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and uh, now... Uh, having not quite a life of leisure, because I think you're working on at least one, if not more than one book, Jim, and uh, so you're still at it. I'm, I'm still I'm still at it. Uh, uh, I am puzzled by this calendar. I mean, long ago, it used to be the Labor, Labor Day weekend, uh, the, the day after Labor Day weekend was the day campaigning started. Uh, uh, I, I think I, I yeah. think it's gone the way of 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 of, of wearing white. <laughs> After labor, yeah. Well, stop living in the past, Galloway. You're right. Campaigns and politics are endless uh, these days. Uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver uh, is back with us. Uh, Mary Margaret. You know we're always happy to have you on the show. How has your summer been, Mary Margaret? It's been great. I have enjoyed being out and about and going to Iceland and going to Town Creek and to doing all my politics uh, for my friends and for myself around uh, Atlanta. It's been a fun summer. Well, thank you for joining us um, today. Eric Tannenblatt is uh, back with us as well. Eric, of course, has worked with Republican candidates uh, uh, from uh, uh, local races to governor to uh, presidents. He uh, was the uh, uh, chief of staff during the first term of Sonny Perdue's tenure as governor. And now Eric is the global chair of public policy at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Hi, Eric. Hey, Bill. Nice to be with you and my fellow panelists. Great to be back. Um, and we're also joined by Leo Smith. Leo Smith is uh, a longtime Republican consultant. He at one point worked for the state Republican Party. He now has his own government relations uh, uh, firm, Engaged Futures. But Leo, um, a little later in the show, we're going to talk about a new project, which um, was finally announced uh, through the Carter Center that you're very much involved with. And it has to do with seeing if we can lower the temperature and get people thinking about elections in a more straightforward, accurate way. Um, you'll tell us more about uh, uh, that in a, in a little while. So thanks for being here today. My pleasure. We know we political consultants have sometimes uh, created messaging malfeasance. And so we have to jump in here and make sure our republic's on the right track. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's start with this. Uh, what was blockbuster news to people in Metro Atlanta yesterday? And but I think it's safe to say has an impact on how people think about healthcare across the state of Georgia. And and that is um, Jim Galloway out of basically nowhere with no advanced warning. Uh, Wellstar Healthcare Systems announced that they are going to shut down in November the Atlanta Medical Center a facility that has almost 500 beds. It's one of only a handful of level one trauma centers in the state of Georgia. And um, this news hit people very hard uh, because it's going to leave, according to most healthcare um, professionals, an enormous uh, gap in terms of providing service, uh, not just for the patients who are already going through the Atlanta Medical Center, but for others who need the services the hospital provides. Right. This was, this was I mean, uh, if, if you read this morning's AJC, you'll see that uh, the Grady executives were just caught completely off, gra- uh, off guard. And, 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 AMC and AMC and Grady are the two 
level one trauma care hospital. So it means a, a great deal there. Uh, the same piece says that not even uh, uh, even the doctors associated with AMC were kind of left in the dark. So this is it, it's kind of uh, it, it, this is it's a it it is a shock to the to the healthcare system in Georgia. Um, Mary Margaret, weigh in on this. We Georgia natives know it as Georgia Baptist. And so across uh, all of the state, people are thinking about the history of this fine institution for Georgia. 65,000 ER visits to Atlanta Medical Center over there on Boulevard. And you think about where are those 65,000 people going to go next? Uh, Atlanta Medical Center also closed its East Point Hospital not six months ago and made a pledge to serve all their folks looking at the South Hospital to be able to have opportunity to, to go to their main campus. Well, that's no longer true. This is a real healthcare disaster. The mental health work that I've been doing has focused a, a good bit on the crisis and the tension at emergency rooms uh, for a very large population. and where or what portion I'm thinking today of those 65,000 people going into the ER at Georgia Baptist are in some psychiatric crisis where there are already extremely limited opportunities for help. We, uh, the Democrats with Stacey Abrams, are having a press conference tomorrow, this morning at 9.30 right in front of the hospital um, to talk about the disaster that this was and, uh, again, to examine uh, Medicaid expansion. What opportunities have we lost to strengthen our health care system? And there are a lot of specific conversations going on today that I hope will lead to some solutions and to some real conversations about the needs that we have that are not going to be met in a more desperate way in the near future. Uh, Leo and Eric, uh, John Halpert, who is the CEO of Grady uh, Hospital, uh, said this to the AJC, every day, every single one of our inpatient beds is full and there's patients waiting. Um, he points out that the brunt of, of the overflow from uh, AMC, from the Atlanta Medical Center, is going to land in Grady's emergency room. Um, and and also in Emory University's Midtown Hospital in Piedmont, Atlanta, and Halpert said he spent part of the day on Thursday talking to the CEOs of those uh, hospitals. And then he said this, to the patients that um, AMC has been serving, I don't see any evidence that there were intentional plans put in place to assure that those patients had a smooth transition to another care environment. And so I'm very concerned about patients who were going to be left without a source of care or a source of access. Uh, Leo and then Eric, please uh, uh, join the conversation. Well, access is important. We're clearly at a critical space, a place here uh, in Georgia as we look to make sure both rurally and ur in urban environments we have enough medical care. And I think this puts pressure on both sides. One, it puts pressure also on those who have rejected the governor's plan to have a modified uh, acceptance of these changes. And, and he has made that plan, and I think he wants a part progressive solution that doesn't immediately commit us to being overtaxed um, revenue-wise. And I, I think that this does put pressure on Democrats to say, okay, let's at least begin the process towards making sure we expand some care. Eric, I want you to get in, but Leo, before we do that, I, I wanna make sure I just heard what you said. You're suggesting that Governor Kemp's plan to take Georgians off the ACA exchanges where they can shop for competitive prices on their health care and, and instead having a, a state-run uh, 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 site or sites that will give private insurers the opportunity to bid for your uh, insurance dollar, that will help this situation? Well, I think just putting... Um all medical operators in a competitive process in which they can make sure by market forces that they can afford to provide services and that any facilitation we might get from federal resources are available. And that does increase that possibility of moving towards a more complete solution. Um, Eric, why don't you uh, join the conversation now and then let's talk a little bit more about what Eric said after that. I mean, what Leo said. 
Well, well, first of all, I, I just hate that we're turning this into a, a political issue. This is a, a serious issue. And, and, of course, we're in the height of a political campaign, so both sides are going to posture. But th- this is this is a real issue uh, in Atlanta. And, you know, Wellstar signaled when they shut down the East Point Hospital that they were going to, uh, you know, use the Atlanta Medical Center to handle some of those patients. So on the heels of that, for this closure to happen and the way it happened, I mean, I, I understand why Mayor Dinkins was so Dickens was so uh, outraged that there was no discussion. You know, if, if you think back to, I guess it was, what, 15, 20 years ago uh, when Grady Hospital was struggling, the community all came together to figure out a way to rescue Grady. Uh, Atlanta uh, can tackle, you know, big problems if given the, the time to think this through. And this just seems like it was such a shock. You know, the healthcare system has been strained so much uh, due to COVID. And, and one thing we need to also recognize, too, is that we've got a healthcare uh, staffing shortage right now. We have a shortage of nurses. And, and so, you know, we, we can try and politicize this as much as we want, but I don't think throwing money is necessarily uh, the, the answer to all of the problems just because of some of the staffing challenges that we have as well. And I'm hoping that, you know, the outrage in the last 24 hours will uh, get people to, you know, cool our heads to prevail and, and come up with some solutions instead of trying to just politicize this. Um, Mary Margaret, uh, it, there's no question that the people hit hardest by this are, the, first of all, the patients at the Atlanta Medical Center, and it is a human crisis in that sense. But th- there's no doubt, it, of course, it's going to enter the political dialogue, especially when you have Democrats who are pushing for a full expansion of Medicaid. But I think it's important, Mary Margaret, to point out that the CEO of Wellstar said that even if we had full expansion of Medicaid in Georgia, it would not have solved the crisis of financing that we face today? I don't think there's any one silver bullet uh, that's going to solve the health care crisis, but money and planning and coordination are part of a serious discussion. What I agree with with these gentlemen is that it's a serious discussion that's necessary. In 2016, prior to the election of Trump, there were serious conversations, publicly pre- presented plans of Medicaid expansion to take advantage of the full ride that the feds were and essentially still providing for states. And the Georgia Hospital Association and the Georgia Chamber of Commerce put through for three specific plans of Medicaid expansion. When Trump won, all of that went away. And right now, we have a standoff with the federal government based on this exchange swap that Kemp proposes. And we have a confusing set of litigations about the other parts of his plan. And there is no serious conversation going on. Uh, Axios wrote a story a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I was quoted in, that say that people are whispering about it in the back room. But I would like to see, what is uh, Governor Kemp saying about this? I haven't seen it yet. If he said anything, I haven't seen it. Uh, a response of keep chopping is not going to work right now. We have to have, and I'm calling on the chamber, the hospital association, the governor. I'm calling on all heads. This is a serious conversation. We are not having it in any kind of transparent way. And to the extent it's happening in the back room, and I'm aware of a little bit of that, based on mental health planning and budget for their next budget cycle, we're in a serious position. And just pointing the finger saying you politicalize this or you shouldn't talk about Medicaid expansion because we're tired of that being an issue is not a good answer to a very, very serious problem. Where is the leadership from the chamber, hospital association, and both political parties to put forth specific specific plans that are going to help us prepare for November 1st when we close 460 beds and take away 65,000 ER rooms visits. Well, I, we, we assume that we'll begin to see how the community may come together. I mean, this announcement, as, as everybody said, was mm-hmm. a shock to the system. So we mm-hmm. have an opportunity to see what's going to happen. But Jim, uh, why don't you jump in, but just to uh, make one more point. Uh, uh, Governor Kemp himself didn't comment, but a spokesman 
for the governor said that, that Kemp is concerned about Atlanta's already fragile health care safety net. And that spokesman uh, touted the policies such as a planned work requirement for a more limited Medicaid expansion. I, that seems like hardly the answer uh, to a crisis as significant as this one. No, no, especially when you consider that most uh, most of the people who go to the emergency room, emergency room probably already have jobs. They are working. They just don't have health health care coverage. Uh, and and I, w- I would I would argue that that money is a big factor here. Uh, I think Eric's right. Yeah, the cost of health care has gone gone up. Uh, the cost of personnel nursing is just has just skyrocketed. I'm sure that's one um, one factor here. But uh, look. Uh, I, I think the figure is 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 that AMC, formerly known as Georgia Baptist, uh, 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 provided three hundred million dollars worth of indigent uh, care uh, in the last year, and its its budget shortfall is one hundred and seven million. So so uh, so so that's that's something. Uh, as for its and and it has put out a statement that that um, uh, Medicaid expansion alone would not have would would not have altered this decision. Uh, it would have it would have been highly impolitic if they had 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 blamed the failure uh, the, the 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 state's failure to embrace uh, Medicaid expansion as 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 a reason. They've got they've got lots of irons in the fire uh, across Metro Atlanta. So that's that's not really a surprise. I think the main difference here, and that we're going to have to struggle with, uh, and, and that's that's going to be. Uh, uh, that the governor Kemp is going to have to be uh, wrestling with the, the difference between uh, the 2016 and Grady, uh, when Pete Carell kind of took the took, took of, of Georgia Pacific took the reins and and really hammered out the 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 compromise that saved that saved Grady. The difference is that Grady, of course, has has a a, a governing board that that was making all these decisions uh amc is 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 a nonprofit hospital but it's operated by the for-profit wellstar uh group and that that is going to make the big difference you're going to have to you're going to be working with a for-profit profit entity uh uh to, to see to, to make a business case for that and i i think that's going to be very very hard you know, Eric, I think Jim just made a very important point. I mean, we were those of us who followed the Grady Hospital rescue effort closely were extraordinarily thrilled when Pete Carell and his team did manage to save Grady. But as Jim points out, uh, that was the DeKalb, Fulton County. DeKalb and Fulton County had literal stakes as government entities in Grady Hospital, and therefore. Uh, had weight behind them to make sure they could find a way to keep the hospital open. When you have a private company, even though they're operating a nonprofit hospital, even though they're doing a wonderful job with indigent care, but a private entity like this doesn't have quite the same incentive or motivation to keep its doors open, I don't think. Yeah, but let's let's not forget that when the Grady Hospital issue was when we were dealing with this, quote, public board, that was not the easiest thing. There were a lot of challenges dealing with that board. And I would say, too, that since this is a private entity of a not for profit hospital that does have a board, maybe uh, a private sector board can be a little bit more nimble in trying to address the problems and you won't have the same challenges that they have at the Grady board. All right, um, let's talk about it for a couple more minutes, Leo, and let's put it squarely in the political arena. Listening to what your comments were before, um, I, I would have to say that you agree with the statement the governor's office put out that Kemp's plan for a limited expansion of Medicaid coupled with a work or service requirement is a, pos- is a step in the right direction, not necessarily specifically for AMC, but for healthcare across the state. That would be, I think, I think I'm right in saying that would be your position on this. Well, my position is on moving towards a solution for a situation that is clearly triage. I mean, to use a medical term, uh, we are in a situation where both structurally and individually, the person needing healthcare and the people providing it are really struggling to make sure they have the resources to do so. So you cannot create a solution until you come to the table. And I think both sides uh, need to look for ways 
to start making movements towards a solution. And we don't see that. We see p political opposition without discussion of reasoned ways to support the system better. And, and we have mm. to have those conversations. So when the governor says, I'm willing to start, I think we need to give that more attention. All right, um, Mary Margaret, one last word on this from you. Um, we've, we almost have grown used to, if not happy with news of rural hospitals in Georgia shutting down in the last decade. Um, uh, but this it brings it really right in to the city of Atlanta itself. And um, I just think there's a different level of, uh, uh, of awareness that it brings to the, to the subject for, for people in the metropolitan area. And I do hope that we will use this as an opportunity. The proposal that uh, I co-sponsored and other uh, Democrats co-sponsored to create in Georgia, in essence, a peach care for adults with a sliding scale income, that's a very specific proposal that I hope somebody will talk about. Uh, we have to move this discussion from messaging and bullet points to concrete solutions. And by the way, North Carolina, that's one of the 12 states that have refused to expand Medicaid, is having very substantive discussions in the public, transparent, in their General Assembly or whatever their uh, legislative bodies called up there for the first time. And I think that we look at North Carolina a lot in terms of a comparison in many different ways, positively. And that's a good public discussion going on right now during a hot political season. I urge leaders, business, for-profit, and non-profit to have a public discussion. What are five different specific proposals that will help Georgia expand the discussion in a more intellectually honest and productive way? All right, um, let's do this. Why don't we take our first break in the show today? Clearly, we're going to be following this story as developments occur in the uh, days and weeks ahead as, as people, leaders in the city of Atlanta, uh, try to absorb the shock of this announcement, and we'll stay on top of that. Um, let's move on to other political topics after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Leo Smith, Mary Margaret Oliver, Eric Tannenblatt, Jim Galloway join me for Political Rewind today. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but a quick program note. Um, we're going to take Monday off. Labor, it's Labor Day. So the Political Rewind team is going to take the day off. NPR will fill our time slots uh, with a, uh, a political uh, show. Um, so you won't have to worry about that. They're airing a show called Our Body Politic. Um, and then we'll be back on Tuesday. And by the way, on Tuesday, we've got a really interesting program lined up for you. Tamar Hallerman and I are going to be talking with Washington Post columnist Dana Milbank. Dana has got a brand new book out called The Destructionists. And the thesis of his book is that for people who believe that somehow the rightward turn of the Republican Party is based on Donald Trump and his allies going back to, say, 2015, don't understand just how much Newt Gingrich, Congressman Newt Gingrich, had to do with the direction the party took back then and has uh, gone more and more toward ever since. It's a really interesting book. Dana will be here on Tuesday to talk about it. All right, let, let's get back to our conversation. Um, Jim, uh, we now have learned that uh, the January 6th committee has said that they want to interview Newt Gingrich. Uh, uh, they've got emails that Gingrich sent to senior advisors to uh, Trump after the election. Jared Kushner uh, got some of those emails. Jason Miller, who is one of uh, Trump's top officials, and uh, uh, Benny Thompson, the chair of that committee, 
uh, said that those emails pertain to Gingrich offering advice about the language that Republicans uh, uh, should use in commercials, TV commercials they were putting together to help persuade the American people that the election was, in fact, uh, rigged. And, and here's just, I, I think it's important to say, here's some of what Newt Gingrich said. He said, quote, the goal of these commercials is to arouse the country's anger through new verifiable information the American people have never seen before. If we inform the American people in a way they find convincing, they will then bring pressure on legislators and uh, governors. He wrote that on December 8th to Kushner and Jason uh, Miller, Jim. Right. There's also some indication that he was involved in line editing, uh, some television ads that were directed at, at Georgia voters uh, in the lead up to to the, the, the certification here. Uh, it, 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 your, your focus on language is, is really is really interesting, uh, Bill, because this is I mean, this is pure pure Gingrich. This is this is where he had his beginning uh, in uh, leading up to uh, his seizure of the speakership in 94. I mean, this is the fellow who focused on the use of language and terminology like like uh, like like uh, traitors and betrayal uh, keywords uh, uh, that that really drew a line between Republicans and, and Democrats starting in the in the 1990s. And it's it's uh, uh, it is. It is in. It's certainly in full flower now. Um, let me add one more piece of information, uh, Eric Tannenblatt. Uh, Benny Thompson also uh, said that in terms of the notion of these fake electors, um, that on January sixth, twenty twenty one, the evening of January sixth. Uh, Gingrich sent an email to Mark Meadows late in the evening about the fake slate of electors from Georgia and other states and asked in that email, quote, are there letters from state legislators about decertifying electors? Now, Eric, not only is the January 6th committee interested in that, but it strikes me that when Fannie Willis and her team at the special grand jury see just that, you know, uh, about the fake electors, they're going to want to talk to Gingrich too. Look, I, you know, Newt has not made any comments, or at least I hadn't seen him making any comments. And you know, he's a <laughs> he's a friend and a former colleague, and I think that we owe it to him to hear uh, what what he has to say. I, I do, I do, you know, agree with some of what Jim said. I mean, this is what Newt Gingrich is 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 known for, and is is, is he's he's very good at language and. Who knows what was going on or what he was hearing and thinking back in early December when, uh, you know, those uh, scripts were, were being written. But but I think we owe it to the speaker to hear you know from him before we draw any conclusions. All right. Well, um, thank you, Eric. And let's listen to a moment or two of Newt Gingrich, um, because he has on a number of occasions on Fox News talked about what he thinks of the January 6th committee. So it's interesting they now want to talk to him. Um, on one of the Fox shows, uh, he characterized the January 6th committee, Leo, uh, this way. Let's listen. Pursuing innocent people, causing them to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in legal fees for no justification. And it's basically a lynch mob. And unfortunately, the attorney general of the United States has joined that lynch mob and is totally misusing the FBI. And I think when you have a Republican Congress, this is all going to come crashing down and the wolves are going to find out that they're now sheep. And they're the ones who are, in fact, going to, I think, face a real risk of jail. Leo. I think Jim Galloway just said it beautifully. That soundbite is pure Newt Gingrich, hyperbole, vitriol, uh, add the adjectives uh, that you choose. But uh, what do you think about his being called before the January 6th committee, Leo? Well, the January 6th committee is doing its work. The Department of Justice has obviously uh, become more engaged in the public in, in these days uh, with this work. The process has to take its course. And, you know, the rhetoric that a political messenger used is part of the reason why I'm doing this work with the Carter Center and other American institutions to increase trust and to make sure that structurally and professionally, uh, those of us who are engaged in political messaging 
aren't drawing fire on our republic. And so that's what's going on here. And, and you know, uh, Speaker Gingrich is in a modality that he seems difficult to, to, to pull out of. The president, former President Trump is adding to that modality, uh, staying on this idea that J6 uh, committee has no good um, for democracy. Um, and, you know, I disagree and lots of Republicans disagree. Um, Jim, Eric is absolutely correct. Gingrich has not weighed in on this at all. He's uh, he said through, I think through a spokesman, maybe he said it himself. He hasn't seen the letter from Benny Thompson yet, so he has no way to respond to it. Uh, yeah, a couple things. I, I would point out number one, just to, just a reminder to the listeners that uh, that uh, Newt Gingrich's wife Callista was was uh, Trump's ambassador to the Vatican. Uh, during during his administration, so so there was a little self interest there. Um, the the other thing, uh, B- Bill, you had mentioned that uh, that that inquiry about was there a letter from state legislators uh, uh, to, to Meadows? Uh, was was there a letter uh, from state le- legislators uh, supporting uh, uh, the, the 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 fake elector elector slate in Georgia? That he he sent that message on January sixth. Gingrich did in uh, in Georgia on January five. You had uh, State Senator Burt Jones fly up to D.C. for a dinner with Mike Pence with a letter that he didn't deliver. In, in the end, he did not deliver, but it was a letter from Georgia s- state senators saying they would support this fake uh, 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 reconsideration of, of Georgia's electors. Um, Mary Margaret, I think everyone on this panel followed Newt Greenwich's career from very early on and saw the arc of that career. We know how he has operated over the years, and being out of office hasn't changed uh, his style in in any way. And certainly that soundbite from Fox News uh, is an example of that. The question is, is he going to respond and appear before the January 6th committee? They haven't subpoenaed him. They've invited him. For 30 years, uh, Newt Gingrich has been, uh, let's say, a unique voice. And now in 2022, he uses a very, very loaded word, lynching and wolves. And so the pattern is, is absolutely uh, set in his use of CPAN, his creative use, his creative use, uh, beginning 30 years ago to accelerate emotions and accelerate motions negatively, negatively. Uh, he has continued to be a, a voice. And uh, one of the people that Trump might have been listening to, obviously, uh, uh, Ambassador uh, Gingrich uh, was a was a very visible, important appointment by President Trump. I think this is all accelerating the negative emotions that are surrounding the legitimate law enforcement activity. Yesterday, one of the uh, January 6th people who physically attacked a law enforcement officer was given the most significant sentence yet. A former police officer was sentenced to 10 years. I believe the evidence was undisputed that he was physically attacking a law enforcement officer. I think that when we begin to have a less emotional and perhaps hopefully more quiet discussion about what do we do about the fear and animosity of our political arena, then Newt Gingrich's voice may be tempered a little bit. I expect him to be uh, opposition to any request by any Fannie Willis or uh, January 6th. I expect his language, but we'll see. I don't. I don't know what he'll say. But the pattern is: uh, you either take the Fifth Amendment, show up and take the Fifth Amendment like John Eastman, or you politicalize and use words like lynch mob and say you're not going to cooperate. All right. So, uh, by the way, you just mentioned John Eastman. We should say, for people who haven't seen the news yet, John Eastman, who was the Trump attorney, who uh, uh, clearly, based on all the testimony we got from the January 6th committee, uh, was sort of the organizer of these fake slates of electors. And he did, in fact, take the Fifth Amendment or cite attorney-client privilege to every question that he was asked, apparently, uh, before the special grand jury, according to reporting from the AJC. Meanwhile, Eric, um, federal judge uh, Lee Martin May has said for a second time 
that Senator Lindsey Graham must testify in front of the special grand jury. Um, he had challenged her first ruling on that, taken it up to a three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit Court. They essentially stayed the order for him to testify and sent it back down to her saying, see what we can do here and look at this more carefully. What should he talk about? What shouldn't he talk about? Uh, what should he be allowed, not allowed to talk about? Is there some uh, protection for him as a sitting senator? Um, and then send it back up to us. So we're kind of in this odd position where she has said, yes, he must testify. Here are the limitations to what the committee can ask. But now it goes up to the entire 11th Circuit Court of Appeals for a final uh, decision is the way I understand it, Eric. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll see what they, what they you know, decide to do. Uh, and if he has to testify, he has to testify. And, you know, it's, you know a lot of this is just really um, it, it's distracting from us talking about other bigger issues um, that, you know, the country is facing right now. And it's just uh, unfortunate. Um, I think it, it looks like, you know, I, I, I don't want to get ahead of the 11th Circuit, but you know, the, the judge did what she was asked to do, and now we'll just have to wait and see what, uh, what their decision is. Um, Jim? Uh, yeah, it, it's 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 interesting. Just but just to to be clear, this is uh, this this is uh, very very consistent with with what we've heard vis a vis every other witness that's been subpoenaed. Uh, I don't think there is a single witness yet. Some uh, uh, Mary Margaret, you're the lawyer in the, in, on the panel here. I don't think there's a single witness yet who has uh, who has been freed of of testifying. Uh, when subpoenaed, uh, I I, th I think I I think the judicial system, the court system, the judges, uh, uh, particularly down, uh, the, the 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 superior court judge here in Fulton County, who's overseeing this, they've been very insistent that uh, that 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 people uh, testify. Uh, Jody Heiss tried to get out of it; uh, he was uns unsuccessful. Brian Kemp. Uh, uh, the most Brian, he, he was somewhat successful. I mean, he, he, he was able to push off his testimony until, until after, uh, the November election, but, uh, the judge made it clear he's going to have to talk. Um, Leo, one exception, and that is judge Robert McBurney, who oversees the special grand jury did in fact, uh, say, uh, that, um, uh, the GOP candidate, for Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones does not have to testify, at least in front of Fannie Willis's panel. Fannie Willis held a fundraiser for Charlie Baylor, Bailey during the primaries. McBurney said the optics of that were awful as far as he was concerned, and uh, therefore uh, 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 that, it, it, that she could not uh, uh, be involved in his testimony. And we don't know if that's going forward at all. Well, you know, we are reminded to uh, the moral edict of avoiding the appearance of evil. And certainly, uh, no matter what sort of strategy these folks may be, um, uh, you know, deploying, uh, the end result is, is that making these decisions and holding some of these hearings after the election um, helps avoid the appearance of evil of Democratic uh, Party's, uh, you know, manipulation or involvement with uh, trying to impact campaigns. But also, um, it is within reason that uh, folks will want a message to their base on the Republican side that they're fighters, that no matter whether they think that they're going to win these decisions or not to avoid uh, having to testify, they have to show that they fought against this, you know, oppressive regime coming after them. And I think that's a lot of what you see, too. Uh, Mary Margaret, I want to ask you a question and then certainly add whatever you want. Um, you are the lawyer on the panel. Burt Jones, uh, we don't, it's sort of in suspended animation. A new prosecutor will have to be picked to uh, pursue any investigation against him. He has been named as a target of the special grand jury, but that could go on for quite some time, yes? My observation is uh, based on long history of working in two cultures, the legal culture of litigation lawyer and the, obviously the political culture, the legal system is working, in my view. The legal system is making the tough calls based on evidence and the traditional power of the grand jury. Uh, 
And the focus on these false electors is very appropriate. And I speak now with a maybe a much more narrow lawyer voice. How does Sidney Powell still have a license to practice law? How does how does that happen? And how is it that other false electors who are lawyers who sign affidavits in bad faith, my opinion, uh, still have licenses to practice law? All of that is being examined. It's a discipline to that. And Burt Jones leading a pure political, not a lawyer, saying election stolen, fault, you know, all of that kind of stuff is is pretty dramatic. It's pretty, you know, people keep saying, well, it's never happened. We've never um, gone in and raided a president, or, and so-and-so senator shouldn't have to go to the grand jury. Well, the uniqueness of the facts are totally outside any norm, as most every chapter of Donald Trump's path of being president, now former president, is totally unprecedented. What looks to me like from the outside, the criminal acts of taking top secret documents, totally in violation of the law. All of these are things that just are not in any kind of norm. And our legal system is responding, in my view, in an appropriate way, and judges are making tough calls. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more with this great panel. Leo Smith, here's just a little bit of what uh, President Biden said in his speech last night, in which he uh, essentially, to use a cliche, took off the gloves, went after Donald Trump by name, and um, also went after all of the MAGA Trump enablers. Let's listen. As I stand here tonight, equality and democracy are under assault. We do ourselves no favor to pretend otherwise. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. Leo, uh, we know that throughout his campaign and during the first year plus of his presidency, President Biden said he wanted to try to find a way to be a uniter, not a divider. He obviously has changed that approach recently. And this is the most uh, impactful example of that. What did you make of the speech? Well, I mean, he is still politically messaging a little bit. I uh, hope that we, the citizen, including American institutions like presidential libraries, will be more aspirational and transcendent and not sort of cast a broad stroke on all Republicans, conservatives in some of the way I heard there. And I think the president's spirit is in the head of the right direction. It's been encouraging to see this five along fire, all of society type of effort that he thinks is necessary. And that's why this work with the Carter Center that I'm doing on developing a cross-partisan network to make sure that we can build, build democracy resilience outside of political messaging, just on supporting the republic and, and saving our democracy, building the trust in the elections. Um, we've got to use words that build trust data that use trust, because not all Republicans, the majority of Republicans don't um, think that we should distrust our electoral process. They think the system works, and we need to put that data out there, and this project's going to do that. All right, let me let me give you a moment on that, and then let's get back to the Biden uh, speech. It's called the Georgia Democracy Resilience Network. The Carter Center announced it last week. Paige Alexander, the president of the Carter CEO, said of the Carter Center, it's exciting to see Georgia Republicans and Democrats come together through this network to help preserve democracy. You're one of the Republicans involved. Rashad Ritchie is the Democratic uh, 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 participant, among others. Uh, So what are you going to try to do very quickly? Well, one, we're going to try and make sure that we send out the facts, that, that there are Republicans all over our nation, including the four states that we're in, primarily Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, and Florida, that Uh, assert democratic principles and and are working to build a conservative infrastructure that is is supportive of democratic process related to candidates, 
uh, conceding at the right time, making sure we have peaceful transfers of government, and that we have some normative standards that conservatives believe in, robust protests yet, but peacefully done so, that we provide a way to be proactive and making sure that we mitigate some of the, the hostility out there. And we also reacted to build forces that are networked amongst our emergency service providers and our poll workers. It's an incredibly tall order. Um, uh, we're going to do a show uh, about this at some point in, in the weeks ahead. We'll do a, a, a bigger show about exactly what this uh, project is all about. But thank you for giving us a little insight about it uh, today. All right, Mary Margaret. Back to President Biden. Um, I really watched this speech, and it, it struck me. Well, I shouldn't talk about how it struck me. Tell me how it struck you. Joe Biden has uh, an ability to emotionally connect with people. And he, I perceive, and obviously I think he perceives at a much, much, much higher level, the people are very distressed right now about this uh, political dynamic, which is so unattractive and, and off-putting. I think Joe Biden wants people to participate in politics, as all of we do, and he's trying to have a conversation that's an honest conversation to deal with people's fears. As I go around uh, uh, campaigning with my friends and others, it does feel differently. I'm getting more expressions of fear about the political arena right now than I have at other campaigns. And they're coming from, you know, unusual places, people I wouldn't anticipate. So I think that he's trying to deal with a very serious emotional response right now that people are having to very bad facts. Uh, whether or not it's successful, whether or not he reached that right tone, whether or not he touched people emotionally, uh, it's hard to know. Is it the right exact time to do this speech? Um, right, Jim, I, let me just say one th thing about the reaction I had to it. I mean, but the president said that democracy is at risk. What's interesting about that, and Mary Margaret sort of alluded to it, is that right now uh, many of the polls suggest that Democrats think that's the number one issue, taking them to the midterm elections, more important than abortion, more important than, than the economy, inflation. But what's ironic is there are Republicans who have pushed that up as one of the most important issues as well. So, so Jim, who was the president speaking to last night? Yeah, yeah, and 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 I would say those Republicans and Democrats feel democracy is threatened for wholly different reasons. Uh, I I think uh, this was look this this was an unusual speech, uh, uh, because it wasn't about a specific issue. It was it was about it was about uh, uh, democracy's standing in 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 America, which was 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 is is a very very broad and very touchy topic. Uh, Politically, I think it had the had the uh, effect of uh, making sure that Donald Trump stays in uh, stays at the center of the of the uh, of the discussion uh, through through November, uh, which I, I think is, has been so far has been very helpful to to, uh, to Democrats. What's interesting to me was that this was billed as a primetime nationwide address. But you know, as I as I as I, wa as I watched uh, the speech last night, I was flipping through the channel. I didn't see any uh, network carrying uh, any major network carrying it. Fox didn't carry it. PBS didn't carry it. Uh, I think uh, CNN and M MSNBC were the only ones that were doing it live. So I think its impact is is limited. But uh, nonetheless, I, I really think it it it. it, it Put a focus on what the what the the final final what sixty five days of the campaign is going to be. I, I, Eric, I think Jim just said it well. This was an effort to put Trump back in the center of the midterm election dialogue. Um, it was not carried by any of the major uh, networks. I think, to be quite fair, um, although I think we should assume that. President Biden is truly concerned about the state of our democracy. He probably has reason to be that the fact of the matter is this comes off as a political speech. Yeah, well, I mean, given the timing of it, I mean, if you're a Democrat, it probably energized you and you want to be energized for the election. Those that, you know, have been concerned that, you know, President Biden uh, lacks 
energy. I think he was very energetic. And I think his message probably resonated. I think independence probably, you know, liked the message. The key is going to be, uh, does he continue it on? And I think he spoke to them. My guess is conservative rule of law Republicans, uh, you know, probably, you know, like to hear their our president, you know, talking about issues like that to the, quote, MAGA Republicans. It didn't matter at all. If anything, it may fire them up, you know, against the, the, the president. And, you know, any time uh, we're not talking about the economy and the inflation, inflation, it helps the, the Democrats. And so, you know, I'm sure that was what was the mission of the uh, president or his advisors. And so it, I think it probably was politically motivated. I, Eric, I think that, that it is appropriate. And Mary Margaret, I'll let you comment on this. Just point out that Kevin McCarthy gave a speech. Uh, yesterday, in which he basically compared what Biden was going to say about the MAGA Republicans to Hillary Clinton's talking about the deplorables who were supporting Trump in 2016. McCarthy said this was an insult to all of those hardworking people who supported the policies of Donald Trump. Um, And so in that sense, I think Eric is right. If anything, it gave Republicans a message uh, against Biden that they will try to use as we move to the election. I don't uh, suggest that the majority of the Republican voters are interested in inciting violence. I do think that Trump is is an element of Trump that intends to incite violence. I truly believe that. And what Lindsey Graham said last week about there'll be riots in the street if we blah, blah, blah against Trump, I think that that's very dangerous talk. Here's my reality. Here's my experience. In the last 16 months, I've spent time every single day working with Republicans on major legislation on mental health reform. That's a daily activity in my life. I do that at the same time I have to respond to issues of inciting violence. So I'm kind of frustrated myself. Uh, Mary Merger, please finish what you were saying. Did you interrupt you? I'm just kind of frustrated myself. I spend my time every single day on bipartisan substantive discussions with Republicans in a very important substantive bill where we're having serious conversations. And then I have to listen to Lindsey Graham talk about riots in the streets. So I'm kind of emotionally engaged here myself. (laughs) All right. Let's do that. We are really out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, What a great conversation among all of you. Uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, Eric Tannenblatt, Leo Smith, Jim Galloway. Thank you for closing off our week with such an engaging discussion. Um, That's it. We are out of time. We're going to take Monday off, as I said, back on Tuesday with Dana Milbank from The Washington Post. Thank you to Victoria Evans-Cash. To Jay Cook, to Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, the team behind Political Rewind for all you do to make sure this show works as well as we hope it often does. Till Tuesday, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.